Well, welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we have a very special guest, Kim Munson. Now, Kim is the editor of Comic Art and Museum Anthology and the Exhibition Catalog's Dual Views, Labor Landmarks of San Francisco and On Reflection, The Art of Margaret Harrison, as well as many contributions to academic books, journals, magazines, and other publications. She is also the co-curator with her cohort, Trina Robbins, at the Society of Illustrators Museum in New York, the Women in Comics Looking Forward and Back exhibition. Kim, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You were born in Michigan? In northern Michigan in a really small town. I'll use my handy map. I'm like right here on Lake Michigan. It was gorgeous, surrounded by national forest and everything else, but it was also a factory town. So my parents were both, you know, blue collar union members. Because of that, I actually wrote about union label for union labels for a while in the labor movement. Anyway, I, I moved to L.A. in like 79. I worked in the film industry as a scenic artist for about 10 years at, for NBC. And I worked on Tales from the Dark Side and a bunch of like really bad canon films. And then I married a musician and moved up to San Francisco. And I was the president of the nearest chapter up here. I worked in the music business for a long time. And I was a production person for Winterland Productions, the big T-shirt company. Yeah. Yeah. I worked as a creative director for a bunch of dot coms. I went back to school at San Francisco State after the crash and got a master's in art history and started writing about comics. Now, when you went when you went to get your master's, were you thinking you would go and get your Ph.D. or did you what was your your thoughts in terms of going back to school? Well, I had never finished my B.A. I, I started working right away and went from like one thing to the other. So I, it, it actually was a whole thing because I had to finish my GE and my BA, and then I stayed on for my master's. I see. Um, and at the time, like, you know, when I decided that I was going to write my master's about comics, San Francisco State had no idea that this was a real field. This was like in 2008 that I was doing my thesis. So, you know, I, I brought in like the Masters of American Comics catalog and a couple copies of the International Journal of Comic Art. And there were some books of theory out already. There were, there were a couple that were really good. So I, I was able to convince them that, yes, this is a topic that people actually write about. There are some strange demands, but I, I actually wound up writing what was kind of the beginning of my book about high and low and masters of comics and that whole group that came together to do that. The Brian Walker, Spiegelman, John Carlin, and Philbin kind of group that came together. Now, was that also your, was your uh, thesis also influenced your comic art and museums book that that's currently out? Yeah, actually, I kind of think of my comic art and museums book as kind of a kind of what I wish I had when I was in grad school. So it, it's it's got like the opening chapter has a little bit of theory about how differently comics are perceived when they're on the wall instead of on the page. It has a nice thing by Brian Walker that kind of lays out like who all of the famous artists are and why they're famous or important and like kind of the real tools that cartoonists use. And then the overview is by Dennis Kitchen, who 
kind of does like this whole soup to nuts, like at the beginning of my career, comics were nothing. And now here we are, you know. Yeah, so, I want I want to talk about the the comics on the wall stuff when we get to the more theoretical stuff after we get through sort of a chronology. But I want to go back to the very beginning for a minute. I had read that uh, your dad had given you Wonder Woman and Captain America comics to get you interested in figure drawing. Yeah. Was that because you showed some artistic, like they're blue collar, they're working in this town. What what made him think to do that to you, for you? There were a lot of artists in the family, actually. My dad was kind of, even though he had a big ego about it, he was kind of an amateur, I hate to say. But my my older, his older sister, my aunt, actually owned an art school in Beverly Hills. She was married to a silent film star named Monty Blue who was like in the Lillian Gish era. Uh-huh. And he was really well known. He he actually has a star on the Walk of Fame at Hollywood and Vine. I used when I lived in LA, I used to go visit his star all the time. Oh, that's oh, awesome. that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so originally the idea was that, you know, I would learn and then I would spend the summers with her at her art school, which I did quite a lot. As time went on, when I got older, I, I moved out to LA and worked as a scenic artist. So was that because your dad wanted something different or more for you than that blue collar life that they were doing or yeah, just because they, it was they, an they, they, they really, they, they didn't, they, they were always scheming to move and it never quite worked out. The idea was that, that I was supposed to be famous and finance their big move. <laughs> <laughs> I, I lived so, in Michigan for a, a year and it's everyone I talked to, it was all about, we're going to move someday. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's a famous place to be from. I mean, you know, Madonna left and all kinds of people left. You know, it's I, I don't know. It, when I was growing up there, since it was heavily union, it was very progressive. So, you know, to read about the politics that are going on now and the protests against masks and all the open carry and all it's just, you know, that never would have happened when I was growing up there. So you're one of those people that have lived in both Los Angeles and in San Francisco. I assume you're happier in San Francisco currently? Yeah, I, I actually tried to move to, I actually moved to LA briefly again for business reasons. And it, it just wasn't, you know, Mark and I have a beautiful house overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and it's just gorgeous. We're like 12 miles from San Francisco. and yeah, you know, we have like kind of the best of both worlds. I'm really happy here. You know, LA is just a, a giant freeway. It's just spread out everywhere. And we just never, I just never connected with it again. I, the last time I, I moved there in like the early nineties and because I was still married to my ex-husband and I had a lot of music business connections and it it was just a disaster. I we got divorced down there, and that was it. Oh, I, I'll yeah. ask you later who your lawyer was and some <laughs> professional interest. Let's talk about and and I'm going to hand you over to Alex in just a minute to talk about the key exhibitions and museums. Okay. But I, I in terms of the formulation of the book, I'm I'm curious about something in terms of comic art museums. What made you decide to do it as an anthology instead of a straight narrative uh, authored by you? How this kind of developed was 
I had had an idea to do this book for a long time. And through my own research, I had started to put together the chronology of sort of the different waves of comics in and out of museums. Yes. And so culturally, that was very interesting to me about how it tied into all the other major art movements and that kind of thing. And I've um, heard papers that you've done. So, I mean, I know. Yeah. Uh, I, th this particular this particular book, what happened was Brian Walker was contacted by Mississippi Press about doing a book himself, and he he didn't have time to do it. But he was like, well, you know, Kim had been sending around this proposal for a while, and, you know, I think you should give her a shot. So originally it started out like me and Brian talking about this, and then you know, I have other friends that write, and I, I thought that the whole idea of being able to show how public things like reviews and art critics and fan response really kind of shaped our ideas about what's museum quality and what's good comic art. So I, I wanted the original voices in there. Me, me citing it just wasn't enough to me. So I, I brought in this whole group of people. Plus, you know, I wanted expertise in areas I'm not an expert in. You know, John Lent wrote a great article about the comic art gallery in Dubai, for instance. We're Another scholar, Jacqueline Burdett, wrote a great essay about like sort of the evolution of comics in museums in Japan. I would have no idea. <laughs> so, you know, I, I also made it an anthology to get expertise from other people in areas that, that I, I couldn't tell the story. It, it's funny that you bring that up because that was one of my favorite things about the book were the the, the critiques of, of exhibits by people like Clement Greenberg and, and the Manny Farber quotes. I'm a big fan yeah. of Manny Farber. Yeah. And that was that was fantastic. Uh, this whole essay is really amazing. Because yeah. he's so smart. Yeah. Um, in terms of animation and other, other things, the way he writes about it. So one thing I really enjoyed about the book was it was essentially chronology of comic art present or exhibited in museums that went back, you know, uh, close to a hundred years, and then you mentioning them, having like the program books for some of them, then having articles or essays of people that were there at the time that had some impression of those events. So it was like this really nice history looked at from a few different angles of museums that ex exhibited comic art, and and I thought mm -hmm. that was I, I don't think anyone else has has done that before. So it was. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely new for me, and I never really quite thought of it in that way. And it put a lot of things in context for me of just original comic art pages and how they can be presented to the public on an education and enlightenment standpoint. And just going back, you know, you got um, you even have as far back as in 1933, Cleveland Museum of Art, contemporary work by cartoonists and caricaturists. Caricaturist, and yet there was work by Cliff Sterrett, uh, Paul Inner Pals. I love that strip. And then mm -hmm. Dr. Seuss even. So how did you go about, you know, finding out about some of this stuff? I mean, was, is this like internet searches? How, how are you finding this stuff? And, and were you like, wow, that's a, when you, when you discovered these things? Well, part of it was internet searches, but I also did archival research in a lot of places. I went to the Billy Ireland and looked through a lot of files. Like I had no idea when I went to the Billy Ireland that 
Milk Kniff would end up being one of the stars of the book. I I originally went because I knew that they had the Cartoonist Society files, and I knew that the Cartoonist Society did a lot of shows around like the New York World's Fair and stuff. And that was what I was really looking for. But then I was looking at the Kniff files and I was like, oh my God, he started exhibiting and like, yeah. you know, like so many things. Yeah. So, so, and, and he was really a pioneer. So that was like, you know, one of those archival treasures, you know, of discovering. Uh, yeah. 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 So, so I went to three different departments at the Met and looked through their files about shows in the thirties and forties because yeah. I I'd seen in there. Yeah. I was, um, I was really surprised by how they even had uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art 1939 exhibited with some Walt Disney Snow White production. They bought their first animation cell in 1939. And the Times did this great article about it that was actually really kind of forward thinking about like sort of animation and what it means and the whole, you know, memory of, you know, the vultures looking down at Snow White, like what they were thinking. You know, it was, and, and Disney's comments about it were really interesting because he was kind of like, being very macho and like, oh, art, I don't, I don't yeah. think about yeah. that. Yeah, he wasn't you know? really buying into the interpretation aspect of that, but yeah. it, it was interesting to, but they celebrated it and, and analyzed it anyway, right? Yeah, well, and the museum actually took the view that it was like a craftsman workshop kind of thing, sort of like, you know, a lot of the Renaissance artists had their workshop where, you know, there were like six artists working and Rembrandt would come and put a little swatch on something, you know, they kind of looked at it the same way where it was like the workshop of Disney. So that was really interesting. And the Met actually kept displaying Disney off and on for quite a long time. Yeah. And it's interesting to kind of put Walt Disney and Milton Kniff kind of in a similar origination point, because then uh, in 1939, Milton Kniff, like you mentioned, he had an exhibition in the Dayton Art Center and also in New York. And there was press coverage because I don't think a lot of the a, a lot of people know that Milton Kniff and Terry and the Pirates was such a big deal. But he aged Terry in real time and he would use cinematic techniques. He'd portray different genres based on the storyline. It'd be romance, war, whatever. He was an artistic pioneer and he put a lot of a lot of cinematic features in comic art. But then to actually see him take it seriously to the point of him exhibiting all throughout the 40s and early 50s. I was actually the Billy Ireland has the pieces that he displayed in that show in New York. Yeah. That still have the labels on the back. Uh-huh. Oh, and cool. they, they were they were like Asian studies. There were some very moody, you know, sort of shadowy, you know, mysterious looking things. It, it, it was fascinating. So, so Kniff, um, after, after that, after getting all that press and everything, he started a tour of his own of Terry and the Pirates. And starting in 1946, he sent what started out as sort of the making of a Sunday page with all the plates and everything. After it traveled for a little while, he got suggestions from curators and added more stuff. And by the end, it was a huge show that toured to like 20 or 30 different places. And then then the NCS started and he started coordinating exhibits for the NCS and those toured all over and kind of culminated with a big tour for the 
Treasury Department for savings bonds in 1949 right. and a show at the Met of, of American cartooning. It, it, do you feel like he almost elevated some of his fellow cartoonists that were in the National Cartoonist Society to like also kind of encourage them to showcase their art as as a finer art? Do you feel like he kind of elevated where they were too? Was he a pioneer in this for them? Yeah, he, he definitely was. And and I, I think, well, so the cartoonists didn't like curate, you know, it was sort of like they, they just wanted as many of their members as they could to participate. They didn't really curate. This, this was one of the things that eventually kind of was an issue in the 1951 Met show was all of the art critics really wanted them to like curate and pick the best. And they really wanted like a democratic kind of representation of all the, all of their members. So it was like a huge show and some of it was awful and some of it was great. <laughs> but I, I think that Kniff and Alex Raymond were probably yeah. the biggest drivers of the style then. Mm-hmm. Brian Walker actually writes about this quite a lot in his comics history book that he, you know, when it got to the point where, where um, Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon and all of Alex Raymond's strips were were really popular. So many people were emulating their style that they were really influential. Can you, while you're talking about the Kniff, can you talk about Julian Levy just for a minute? Because I, I found that really interesting that he seemed important and visionary a bit. He did a very influential book in 1924 called The Seven Lively Arts. Oh, wow. He wrote this book and became the head of programming at CBS. And he was involved in a whole bunch of exhibitions. The reason I bring him up is the guy that owned that gallery, Julian Levy, read this book and decided he was really into surrealism and had a big gallery and everything. But he also included like ballet and comics and like all kinds of like pop culture art that he treated as high-end artwork and he managed to get a couple frames from Disney's what there's a, a short called like the three little wolves or the three or bad the wolves three, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well anyway, so he he managed to get two shorts into an early Museum of Modern Art show that was about Dada. And uh-huh. and you know they, they used some very abstract cells from this short. But but he he was the one that really I I suspect that he's the one that actually sold the Met the Snow White print too because he he had a show of Sal's which was really unusual yeah. in nineteen thirty eight yeah that's great and uh, well it sounds like he was kind of a futurist or, or a pioneer in that sense as far as appreciating what's what's going on around him yeah well then, I'm, I'm great I'm grateful there for eBay because. Uh, someone who was an assistant at the gallery actually wrote a history of that gallery with a lot of citations and everything. So I was able to track that down on eBay and actually have a more in-depth view of, of that gallery and that, that guy. Yeah, that is great. Just to finalize on Kniff before we talk about an earlier thing from this, but his, his work was even shown, you mentioned, in the 1964 New York World's Fair also. And and that was such a cultural event, and that his work being included in that, I think, is a testament to how influential he was just in general. Uh, I think a lot of a lot of Americans were reading his stuff for uh, from Tearing the Pirates all the way through Steve Canyon, 
Um, yeah. So it's kind of cool to, uh, I, I've never looked at the original art museum aspect of them until your book. But then also in 1942, the comic strip Ancient and Honorable Lineage at the National Arts Club New York for the American Institute of Graphic Arts. And, and this is interesting because they talk about the origin of sequential art. Gaines has uh, an essay that he writes about the history of comics. Tell us about that. And it seemed like they talk about comic strips and comic books. T- tell us about that exhibit. Well, that show was actually one of the things that really started me on my research, too. I saw the Bill Gaines article early on, so I, it was one of the clues that I had that there were shows farther back than, you know, I mean, when, when Masters of Comics came out, we used to see headlines in 2005, this is the first show of comics right. ever, and I knew that wasn't right. So uh, I did a real treasure hunt on this one because Bill Gaines, I guess because this essay was originally published as like a brochure for the show, it never occurred to him to put the actual name of the show in the article. So so I, I had to really do a lot of tracing just to find out what the show was. Yeah, just I to even connect it to out. it, yeah. It, 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 it happened, he mentioned the... Um, the museum in New York, I can't remember right now what the name of it is, but he 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 mentioned it and they happened to have their archives in the um, Smithsonian database. So I went to the DeYoung Museum and looked at their version of the database and found all the newsletters from, from the National Arts Guild. That's what it was. And then I found out later that a female illustrator at the time curated this show, and she was a real anomaly for the time. She did like silhouette drawings for Ladies Home Journal and stuff like that. But she was inspired by Mayan panels, Mm -hmm. that she, she was impressed by the storytelling and how sequential art could tell a story. Mm-hmm. So she started tracing the history. And in 1942, she mounted the show. I went to American Graphic Art Institute's headquarters in New York and looked through their archives and found more info about it and, and the original poster, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And, that's cool um, to find the posters and things. Yeah. Too, as, as far as I know, this was the first one that actually had the history and showed you know, originals from like the collection of the Rare Books Department at the New York City Public Library. Uh And it had originals of like Japanese scrolls and Mayan panels and, you know, broadsheets and all kinds of stuff. Then it had like contemporary comic strips. And it was the first show that I know of that actually showed comic books. They had more fun and they had the first issue of Wonder Woman, they had Superman and all, you know, and, and they had a display from South America because Brazil was like a, a major market during, during the wartime. Mm-hmm. And Kim, this had, this was this original art by yes. like, people like Wilhelm Busch and Doré and, and like some of the European people that, that, that preceded the development of it in, in the U S yeah. I mean, that's fantastic. And, and just to be clear, this, after it closed there, it went on a national tour. So it went throughout the country. It, it went to a lot of different places. And I'm, I haven't like absolutely confirmed this because I haven't seen a checklist, but I'm like 90% sure that they reformed this show and it toured with that treasury department thing and was at the library of Congress in 1949 and traveled around the country with the NCS for that tour. 
And the reason why I ended the the kind of this early part at 1964 with that World's <laughs> Fair is pretty much then there's a division point now in how in how comic art is treated in museums. And I noticed you had mentioned that it was really because of Lichtenstein and uh, Warhol and and having comic art in museums, but almost like their version of other people's comic panels. And then it came off as fine art and being sold for a lot of money. But there is a division point culturally now where now suddenly because there's a high value amount of dollars being bought on it. And there is some cultural event here. Describe how that change it, how, how there's a cultural shift now with how comic art is, is viewed in museums. Well, there's two things there. Let, let me just really quickly talk about the 64 world's fair because mm-hmm. the NCS actually launched an exhibit at the world's fair that toured for like 20 years called cavalcade mm-hmm. of comics. Yeah. Um, and they also had their version of pop art where they spoofed their own cartoons, pop art style in the restaurant at the top of the There park. you go. So, mm-hmm. And, and um, Milk Kniff actually had in a lot, in a couple of different Asian pavilions, they actually had like Steve Canyon Day. So they, they had a big presence. There was a closed circuit TV for the thing. Milk Kniff designed a whole stage for them to do chalk drawings and everything. It was really fascinating. I I hope to write a more in-depth article about the World's Fair. Mm -hmm. So going on through the 60s and pop art and everything, one of the most important shows that happened around that period was at the Louvre in 1967. It was actually the um, Museum of Decorative Arts, which is part of the Louvre. But uh, the French uh, there was a group of French fans that that really, really wanted to exhibit comics. And their idea of replying to pop art was to do photographic blow-ups of panels, like really big, like big. painting size, so that people could really appreciate the drawings. And they really admired Bern Hogarth and Kniff and Alex Raymond. Those were like their three, and, and Crazy Cat. You know, those, those were like their idols. So... There, there were huge blow-ups of, of these very dramatic panels. And that French show actually toured around all over Europe for a couple years. And the UK, there was a show of original art that really influenced a lot of a lot of UK critics like Paul Gravett and people that grew up to be hmm. very important comics people. Okay, so that's how um, you pronounce his name. Paul Gravett is actually Paul Gravatt. No, I I'm no, you're right. You're okay, right. Paul Gravett. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The catalog for that show, for the French show, was very influential in the US when it was republished as a history of the comic strip. You guys have probably seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of gave people started to get really interested in original comic art again after after uh the pop art thing. Um and and uh, university galleries were really interested because underground comics were such a big thing then. Yeah. So they showed classic comic strips and they showed underground comics and right. the, the, the catalog kind of gave them some theory to work with so that they could actually like have an intellectual underpinning. Uh-huh. And it kind of relaunched comics and museums in the seventies. Yeah. Now, now on the underground comics, what where are you talking about like Bob Stewart's Phonus Balonus? 
That um, was the first show. That's the first one. Yeah. That, and that then, was that was solely underground comics. That uh, was yeah. the first show at the And I, I was actually impressed by the list because you have Von Baudet, you have Robert Crumb, Larry Hama, actually, who created G.I. Joe of all of all things. And then uh, Art Spiegelman. And they even had they were even looking at well, did I read that right? They were even looking at Kirby's New Gods art a little bit too in that one. Not not in that show. No, they they, they, they were they were all kind of to, that show that I just mentioned in uh-huh. the UK. Yeah. Yeah. They were all together in that show. OK, they, they okay. brought some underground comics and uh, New Gods was like the sensation of that show, like of that show. Kirby's drawing board. Yeah, that's cool. Now, the early 70s, it's interesting because now it seems like there's some after effects of the pop art stuff then underground comic art so there's a judith o'sullivan's the art of the comic strip at the university of maryland in 71 from 1974 to 2002 you have the museum of cartoon art by mort rocker run by his son brian walker whom you mentioned from what 74 to 92 and that he also curated many shows it started out at connecticut ended in florida rick marshall contributed a lot of comic art to those shows and Jim and I spoke uh, with Rick and uh, how he was friends with Ernie McGee and he got a lot of comic art from that. So it may have been from that collection. But tell us about the significance of the Walker Museum. The formulation of the Walker Museum was after, after the World's Fair show, it toured for a while. And in 1966, the show Cavalcade of Comics was at the Smithsonian. And the original art that was touring with it, they donated to the Smithsonian and refreshed it with new art. This started a dialogue with uh, sort of the arts part of the government to have a permanent comics museum, which they were trying to do at the Kennedy Center at the time. And there were long negotiations going on about it. And somewhere in the middle of this, Mort Walker was inspired to start a museum of his own just to show like the work that he had. Mm-hmm. So they they moved into this, you know, a castle-like structure in, in um, what the Mead Mansion right. Uh, right. in Connecticut. And this wound up being both a museum and the NCS meeting place because so many of the cartoonists lived around that area. So they did the first retrospectives of artists like Eisner and, and crazy cat. And they, they did um, a lot of themed stuff where, where, you know, it was the first show of Marvel ever, you know, lots of really interesting stuff. I've actually got in, in my book, I actually reproduced Brian's list of all the shows they did because it was, um, uh, they had so many firsts. They they had the first show of women's comics, actually. Mm-hmm. Brian had read Trina's first history of women cartoonists and invited her to do a show. Brian and Trina really disagree about this because Trina says that she confronted Mort Walker about it and Mort wanted to have the show. Yeah. Brian really ran the museum. So it, it, it could be like any combination of those. Sure, but, sure. You know, that's a thing between them. Yeah. But you know, looking at the list, they they had they had the first Hal Foster exhibit. They had the first Jack Kirby exhibit. Yeah. They 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 had Dick Tracy, they had editorial cartoons, just like an amazing selection of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, this was all like in 1975. In 1975 actually. Okay, that first Jack Kirby one was 1975? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Yeah. And um, then in 88, the Cartoon Art Museum starts. And then in 1990, tell us about the significance of the Museum of Modern Art's high and low modern art and popular culture brought together. It, it was supposed to bring together dialogue of fine art and low comic art, commercial art. Tell us what that show was trying to do. Did it succeed or fail? Before the show happened with the old guard of the museum, there was like a sort of modern art industry that grew up around it that that really made a living off of all of the lucrative pop art and all of the like abstract expressionist art like Pollock and Rothko and those kind of people. So the Museum of Modern Art was really like still like dimly lit for contemplation. So you would, you would come up to a Rothko and it would have like one spotlight on it and you were supposed to stand there in the hallway and meditate on it. <laughs> and you have to meditate MoMA, MoMA. Yeah, yeah. MoMA. But that, that's kind of what the idea was. So uh, when Adam Gopnik was promoted to be the new director, he wanted to you know, shake things up a little bit and and bring the museum out of this cocoon sort of you know and um modernized so he was trying to show sort of the roots of a lot of the masterpieces that they had in terms of comics that they were based on or advertising they were based on or you know whatever there were four or five categories in the show but Uh, it wasn't really enough to make everybody happy. A lot of the critics were like, you know, what about movies? What about this? What about Mm -hmm. that? You know, Spiegelman had a famous cartoon review of it where he just listed a whole bunch of people that weren't in the show, including himself and really like, you know, Lichtenstein is dead art. What are you guys doing? And, you know, so uh, there was a big debate. One of the things that I point out in my book is that part of the problem is the scale of rooms of the galleries of like the Museum of Modern Art are really designed to show huge paintings. Mm. So when you show comics, they look, you know, they're, they're like dwarfed, you know. Yeah, so small. One, one thing that pissed everybody off was is they wanted to show Crumb and Philip Guston together, who's in the news right now with the National Gallery. But at that time, they, they wanted to show these together. And Gustin's paintings are huge. You know, they're they're like as big as this wall behind yeah. me. And, and crumbs, you know, comic pages. So, so, you know, they showed some comic books and they showed some comic pages. But, you know, there was there was no attempt to really equalize them. Mm-hmm. You know, they sure. didn't do any blow ups or details or anything that would equalize them. So everybody looked at this and they're like, oh, God, it's source material again. And this sucks. And they're putting us down. And, and it really motivated a whole bunch of people to become evangelists for comic art and making sure that comics had their own yeah. shows. That comics have a fair shake in all this. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was actually the Masters of American Comics in 2005 really kind of had its genesis as a response yes, to this show as a response that was kind now, of why so tell us so and in between that there was um i'm just going to throw it out there but we're, yeah. let's focus on masters a bit um 1992 to 1999 kevin eastman had his words pictures museum also that was in the 90s ninja turtles was big then at, uh, also but then tell us about the 2005 masters of american comics at the Hammer, they had comic strips. And then at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, they had comic books. Tell us about that show. 
Yeah. So in the two museums, it was actually like the evolution of those two things. So they they had they because of the design of it and doing the two museums, they decided to limit it to 15 artists because they wanted to have mini galleries for each artist and really show like a really wide range of that artist's work. So, you know, most of them had really long careers. They wanted to show like from beginning to end, like, you know, what their work was like and how it evolved and what the importance of it was. And they wanted to be able to identify, you know, what it was about them that was like the thing that really differentiated and established them that made everybody else like kind of have to follow them afterward. Mm -hmm. So the controversy about the show was there were no women. Mm -hmm. Um, The only person of color was George Harriman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, uh, people, uh, fans and in the press just what if it forever, you know, like, what about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? You know, Linda Berry came up like every time. And, and it was just a very interesting uh, situation because it was the first really big budget, you know, like full on big budget museum show um, to get that kind of press and and have like this big blockbuster lines around the block kind of kind of presentation but it was also like really controversial because of the choices they made i mean yeah. most most people would agree with you know i mean yes the people that are in the show are masters of comics but there were so many people missing that that you know everybody was like you know where is so-and-so? So sure. that was like everybody's favorite guessing game. I would talk about Masters of Comics at conferences years later, and people would still stay in the audience and argue about the choices in the show. Right. It was yeah. very confusing, and I I was there. I took my, uh-huh. all my students there, and I also saw it in Milwaukee when it went, went there, which was very different because there it yeah. was all in one space. It and was all in one space, and a lot of people wouldn't let their sh- their work tour. Yeah. Um. So so it was like a condensed version, and then in New York it was really different because they had a big argument about how the show would be split between the Jewish Museum in New York and in in Newark. Sure. And they kept kind of like redesigning the show so that they would have like, you know, they kind of figured that there would be no cross pollination between. Newark and New York, mm-hmm. that people wouldn't see both of them. So they were trying to figure out how to have like a representation of the show in each one. And also Spiegelman was just really uncomfortable with having his part of the show at the Jewish Museum because right. he felt like it would become like, you know, Masters of Comics and the Holocaust. And he sure. didn't want that. So he he eventually they they disagreed so badly that he actually pulled his work and everything that he loaned out of the show. Oh wow! And it was it was that. it was filled in with Jerry Robinson's collection, right? And and Spiegelman still supported the show and and took Michael Kimmelman of the New York Times for a tour and all that stuff. But it it was really radically different than it was originally in L. Then Trina kind of responded to the show to the Master Show also because she did a comics an exhibition of women cartoonists at the at the museum of comic and cartoon art is that right as a rebuttal in a way yeah so so what so trina when the show opened at the hammer in la trina talked 
at the opening event and and did like you know her history of women cartoonists. The um, essay that I, I published in my book was her was actually the text of her talk. Mm-hmm. And um, in New York, she showed her collection at, at at that museum, which was like kind of a walk up on the third floor and brought off Broadway. Uh, did you guys ever see that museum? No. No. So it was it was like one big open room and it was it was actually they did a nice job. It was kind of equivalent to the Comic Art Museum here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. She had a great show of her collection and she spoke at, at the opening at the Jewish Museum about women cartoonists cuz she she had heard through the grapevine that Spiegelman said that there were no women cartoonists. Mm. You know. Oh okay. Worth, <laughs> worth showing and yeah. no historical women. So yeah, um, sure. Brian Walker and I have actually talked about this quite a lot. He said that he argued for Nell Brinkley. Yeah. But you know, that didn't happen. Yeah. Actually, um, Jim uh, brought uh, Nell, Nell Brinkley to uh, uh, Michael Dooley's attention. And that started off a chain of events that had her included in the Eisner hall of fame. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Trina was really happy about that. I, she, I was she, very did happy about she did. She yeah. did. When when her Brinkley Girls book came out, that beautiful book she did with Fanographic, she actually did a show of of her her Brinkley collection at the Cartoon Art Museum here in San Francisco. And she had one thing that was very interesting was that women, young girls, collected Brinkley cartoons and scrapbooks and painted them themselves. Mm-hmm. So there, she'd have like two or three versions of Brinkley pages that had been painted in different ways by fans. So aside from Brinkley's own work, these, these kind of artist fan participation pieces were very interesting. Mm-hmm. So now in the 2000 teens, it's pretty interesting. There's, there's a, a bit of a celebration of some of the um, underground and more uh, artistic aspects of, of, uh, of comic history. Cause you have Robert Crumb, uh, underground uh, comic art. Uh, there was a, a museum exhibit. Dennis Kitchen co curated place uh, works in the context of counterculture and the anti war movement. So he kind of pushed storytelling in the exhibits as well as a historical background. So do you feel like there's, you know, just different ways of showing comics? How do you feel about the way Dennis Kitchen did it in, in museums? Well, Actually, I'm really familiar with that show because Dennis and I had started a company together with another person, Jim Danke, who was one of the curators of that show, where we actually tried to find other places to tour that show to. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, cool. didn't have, we didn't have luck at that point, but the idea was that that we would, we had the underground classics and also Dennis represents Eisner, El Cap, and right. Harvey Kurtzman. Yeah. So so he has an incredible amount of work to draw from. Yeah. And, um, and I like his uh, Al Cap quote where Al Cap says, yeah, one minute they're reading my stuff. The next minute they're wrapping fish in it. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah um, he, you know, uh, he was a satirical genius. It's really a shame right. that things wound up the way they did, because, I mean, his his artwork is incredible. But we've we've pitched shows about Dennis has like the most incredible Al Cap collection of anybody in the world and like yeah. every schmoo thing you can imagine. And people won't touch it with a 10 foot pole because of Cap's history. Yeah, right? I know. Isn't that crazy? 
And he was a big well, deal back in the day. Yeah. Well, and 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 they're so well trodden. Plus, I mean, he had Franzetta and all, you know, just like it was amazing. So, you know, yeah. it's it's really a shame. We 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 actually pitched to the Schultz Museum. Cap had done a, a spoof of of peanuts and Schultz and you know. It turned out they hated each other so much that they wouldn't even consider it. But it was, oh, wow. it, it was too bad because they were like superstars of the era and with all yeah. the merchandising and everything. Absolutely, the merchandising, but, yep. And then 2012, Art Spiegelman's Private Museum uh, in Andrew LeMay, Klaus's uh, selections from Comics History in 2014, where these cartoonists are actually giving their own versions of of comics history in exhibits and that's an interesting thing because now you have different ways of telling the history then in 2015 the comic book apocalypse graphic world of jack kirby at csu in la curated by charles hatfield after his book hand of fire and tell us and i want to know this and and you'd i think would have a better explanation than me but what's what's the difference between that exhibit the 2015 jack kirby one just culturally and what it means in general versus let's say the early one in 1975 like why are they different as far as from a consciousness standpoint of appreciating jack in in the mainstream well i you know for one thing it it, you know jack was alive in 1975 right Mm -hmm. yeah and and you know he was still working and and creating so so they were they were asking him like what do you want to show I mean he was actually involved in the exhibition mm-hmm. but Hatfield is like such a great Kirby scholar he knows more about Kirby than anybody except his family probably but he had a great eye for the pieces to collect that were important and mm-hmm. what really showed uh, you know what was in what the Kirby style and the Kirby method of storytelling. So the way that 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 show was laid out, there was a main room that had a lot of like sort of big splash pages and really fabulous pieces and a whole wall of the collages, like the most collages I had ever seen in one place. And he also uh, commissioned a couple big murals of the Silver Surfer and of Orion of the New God so that you got like a really dramatic presentation and then there were two galleries behind and in one gallery he had a complete issue of command commandy Mm -hmm. so you could read the the whole story yeah 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 and and he had an ipad in that room so that you could see like some beginning sketches and you could see the colored pages so you could see the actual book as it was published while you were looking at the originals and then he had another gallery that had a whole issue of Thor and had like gods and monsters, like devil dinosaur and that kind of stuff. So, so it was really like an impressive retrospective. Yeah. And, and he had, there was one whole wall that had uh, this incredible piece that he painted dream machine. You know, which one I'm talking about. I, I practically lived there, Kim. I, I went like six or seven yeah, times. I took my this in-laws. One? That was yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I was really thrilled that I was able to reproduce that piece in my book. The, the Kirby show was another one that I thought was important enough that I, 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 I included the three or four different viewpoints on it. There's an essay by Hatfield where he talks about his curatorial strategy. And then I have a couple art critics, one that's basically giving a tour 
of the exhibit by Doug Harvey that he wrote for Comics Journal, and then another one by an art historian that's tying Kirby into like the pop art movement. And and, and, and I would of, just say, Kim, the book that came out of it, the 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 exhibit book that came out of it, also the the talks and lectures that because it was there for a long time for a good amount of time. And there were events periodically, and that's as part of it as much as the what's actually in the the thing. The 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 uh, the level of scholars that came and talked about yeah. it, which I I went to I think every one of those, and so you would have people like Scott Bukotman, but you would have these like really diverse groups of voices all talking about Kirby on the same stage. And some were musicians that just were inspired. Some were academics. Glenn David my Gold. Favorite essay, my favorite essay in the book is Mark Badger's essay yeah, about, about how, how Kirby uses perspective. These three points that I just kind of want you to mention is one, you mentioned that because of let's say now it's after 2000 to 2020, there are changes that have happened as far as two main things. One, you mentioned the economy and gentrification has closed down some museums. And you mentioned the MOCCA in New York, as well as Jeppe's Museum in Baltimore. A lot of his stuff is at the Library of Congress now. Then you also mentioned that the growing diversity of graphic novel art and the money that the comic films have made have caused the, the leftover museums to be more appreciative and showcase more comic art where people can analyze erase pencil lines and white it out cleavage and things like that. Yeah. What, what are, what, tell us about this trend, like what's causing certain things to die off and certain things to be concentrated in this way. Well, because of the popularity of the movies, first of all, exhibitions about superheroes, even though the major art museums aren't biting a lot of science museums and, and uh, you know, yeah. uh, museums that are starting to appear that are really specifically about pop culture are doing big superhero shows. I, I don't know if you guys got to see it, but there was that big Marvel show. This mm-hmm. is yeah. the Dr. Strange Room. There was yeah. that big Marvel show that happened and toured all over. You know, Comic-Con is working on having a museum. I mean, they have a museum now, but they're they're still remodeling. The Lucas Museum of Narrative Arts is under construction. That's very interesting. The, yeah. they, they bought Crumb's whole genesis. I mean, they could theoretically have a permanent exhibit of Crumb's genesis. And there's the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle. But on, on the whole, I think that a lot of the stigma about comics has kind of changed because the work has more value now in terms of like collectability and sales and everything. And, you know, except for museums that are like really still kind of, you know, diehard modernists, I I think that, that a lot of museums are more flexible. They just want to bring in audiences. So, so, you know, if something is a blockbuster, you know, like um, Spiegelman, and uh, Crumb's Genesis, uh, those two toured all over Europe and Canada and into the U.S. And, you know, I, I think that people realize that, that you know, there are names in comics that can sell. In the show that I did at Society of Illustrators now, I have well, several 2020 Eisner winners that are like, you know, New York Times bestsellers, like Hot Comb and 
uh, my favorite thing is monsters, and you know, it's just we're, incredible. We're going to get to that in, in a couple stuff. of minutes too. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to address one other trend that, that you kind of alluded to, and I, I didn't get to talk about the idea of narrative. So going back to Dennis Kitchen and kind of the stuff that he was writing about, narrative is really difficult in, in comic shows because obviously there's stories to be read. They're made to be, you know, read in a book. So, mm-hmm. you know, people come and, you know, they they see a page but might wonder, you know, what's the rest of the story or something. So Dennis's way of dealing with this is to show short stories like, you know, two pages or, or, you know, like if he's showing Eisner, he shows a story arc, yeah, like, you know, sequence. five pages that show sort of a beat, you know, or, um, you know, you, you can go to the extreme. Like I, I talked with Spiegelman about showing his entire mouse and mm-hmm. he was like, you know, I didn't expect everybody to read the entire book standing there in the museum, but what they did is they had a bench with a copy of mouse at both ends Mm. So people would look and they'd read and they'd look and they'd read and walk around. And, you know, Crumb's Genesis was overwhelming. I don't know if you guys saw that at the museum, but I saw it at the San Jose Museum of Art. And the way it was set up, they had like the beginning of the, you know, the Adam and Eve story in a gallery by itself. And it it ended with that beautiful drawing of the tree of life and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And everybody read this really carefully and kind of oud and hod and everything. And then you looked around the corner and it just like stretched out forever. And there would be this audible gasp from people like, oh my God, how am I going to read all this? A lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, it, it, in 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 museum classes, they teach you that people are only going to read two hundred and fifty words in a museum show. Mm-hmm. So it's like this weird thing to put text on the wall and figure out how much people are going to read. So you have to be kind of conscious. Like in the New York show, I kept to four page stories, and I, I think that's the best you can do. Mm-hmm. And then then the other thing, uh, final thing uh, uh, until the next section now is international. You had some cool international discussion. Um, there was a 2011 Cartoon Art Gallery in Dubai, which is pretty interesting because they have their own like Middle East film and Comic-Con um, that it's hard for sequential artists to make a living there. They have to deal with some degree of government censorship. And then also you mentioned Brazil that they also had to kind of deal with kind of communist censors in like 19 in the 1950s to tell us about discussing like the international comic art museum scene and how it is there. Are there differences from the United States from an overview? Yeah, I, I think that the comics have a longer history and in Europe particularly, but they were really different because in, in, uh, in France in 1949, well, what am I trying to say? Yeah, the okay, law of so, 1949 where they couldn't do American comics for a while, right? Yeah, well, basically what happened was is comics were really popular in France, U.S. comics. They were banned during the war, but people would like sneak scrapbooks in them and everything, and they were really highly valued. And that's part of the reason why the French fans were so passionate about them. After the war... U.S. comics like flooded the market again, and then the the French uh, passed that law basically to grow the French comics industry. And at the time, the French hadn't like kept up with the U.S. in terms of design 
and and communication they were still kind of victorian and spidery looking mm. so so it took them a while to catch up but now obviously they're amazing french cartoonists so it worked but but you know the the guys that were were like the comics clubs that were really like into comics in the 60s and kind of launched the whole exhibition thing were very much like the people that came out of the comics of the 40s and the war and all that stuff. Brazil is really interesting because um, they had the first international comics show and conference. Yeah, that's right. And that was 1951. And they did have to deal with some censorship from, especially because it's a very Catholic country. And, you know, it was like a whole juvenile delinquency thing again. Uh You know, but they they were very interesting because uh, Professor DeMoya, who 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 wrote the essay in my yeah. book, um, who's unfortunately passed while the book was in publication, he you know wrote to all of these famous cartoonists and said, "If you send me a piece of your work, I'll have a show in Brazil." And eventually they did, and and they they had a very intellectual thing where they talked about comics and film and sequential art and why it works the way it does and. You know, Eisner talked about that show throughout his career. Yes. He was really, really blown away by it. That's great. Yeah. But then, you know, Japan is an amazing influence. The whole manga thing is so different from our concept of comics. The, the Dubai thing just fascinates me. And, and John Lent, who wrote that, who's the uh, publisher of, of the um, International Journal of Comic Art, has actually been touring around all over Asia to museums and documenting them. In the latest issue, he has two great articles about art museums in China that are showing comic art. It's just fascinating. But, but you know, comics doesn't happen in a bubble. They're everywhere, you know. I mean, obviously, there are European museums. There's Angoulême and there's, there's, you know, the great comics museum in Belgium and, you know, comics are everywhere. It's great. Yeah. Um, did you did you go to the Tezuka exhibit in San Francisco? I did. Actually, was, I wrote about it in my master's thesis. That was fantastic. I still have yeah. my handbag from from that. That was that was eye opening to me and really changed my yeah, interest. You know, it was eye opening for me not not just the selection that they had, which was pretty amazing because I didn't know the depth of Tezuka's catalog. But also it was really eye-opening in terms of display because they did a really good job using like the occasional blow up to emphasize something, you know, or like some character that had a lot of detail or something. They they also included a lot of finished pieces in it. So they'd have like four things and then they'd have the finished comic. They used film really well. You know, they had a projection on one wall with like, you know, Kimba the White Lion and all that stuff. Oh, I I remember that exactly. Yeah. You could actually see all that. I thought they did a great job on that exhibit. It was one of the best comics exhibits I'd seen like up to that point. That's what I was thinking. It's, it's, It's still one of my favorites that I've ever been to. Yeah. I wish it would have toured, you know, it was, it was great, but it didn't. We've talked about, the exhibits and the museums, uh, maybe for just a few minutes we talk about, because one of the concepts of your book is that it be how comics are gained recognition as art. And there are other ways it happened besides museums and things. Uh, yeah. So let's just kind of go through those a little bit. One of them that's mentioned is Jules Pfeiffer's book, 
which also uh, has a really special place in, in my heart. Talk about yeah. that for a minute. Well, all of those shows that happened in the 70s, the ones that published a catalog, I went through their bibliographies, and most of them credit that book in history of the comic strip. But the Pfeiffer book is really interesting. There's a show that happened at the Art Institute of Chicago called, uh, I'm spacing out at the moment, it'll come to me. Uh, but it, it was it was a, a fine art show of like um, Peter Saul and people that were doing like really like kind of really abstract sort of pop art that was sort of surreal. But the the curator used Pfeiffer's book as kind of the underpinning to be able to talk about all, all of the things that the artists were were doing and their paintings and everything. And I, I I just think that that book had a big influence because. After the pop art era, a whole new group of people were really curious about comics. And most of the books that were out were like out of print. So Pfeiffer's book was a real breakthrough because it really brought that history to mind again. And, and, and you know, he, he's such a great artist himself that his commentary was really good, too. So um, And he had I, instant, I, I mean, he just because he's of a different moment of that time, he, he instantly gives it all credibility just right. by his very association with it. Right, right. So, so uh, you know, there, there was that. And then, then the history of the comic strip was kind of like, that came out in 68. So there, he, Pfeiffer was 65. So the two of them were kind of companions in most of these shows of the 70s. Now, you also talked about the IDW collections. Yeah. Where you, they're almost like little mini museums within themselves. Talk about that and how it's different and, and what what that really allows people that, that don't get to go to these. As you mentioned, not everything tours. What do yeah. what do the what do the IDW books do in terms of accelerating the appreciation of it as art as compared to just stories that you read through? Yeah, well, so where that essay came from, that essay is written by Andre Molitou, who's an art historian at, at um, like the University of Indiana or something. Um, he's actually a Kirby specialist, too. Who, he talks at Comic-Con fairly often. I have two essays by him. The first essay is about seeing comics as an art object. He wrote this right after Masters of Comics in 2005 and presented it at a, a convention that really serves like the market of art historians and art history teachers and studio art teachers. And it was about gallery comics. Oh, about yeah. Comics. I want to talk about that in a few minutes, too. Okay, cause... well, uh, to get to your point, so I, I published Andre's article and he really didn't have time to do an update. And when I went back after peer review to do an edit, I invited him to do an update. So he wrote this update about Commandy and Hatfield show and also about the IDW books and how there's such a great reproduction of, of like the real thing. It's almost like a museum experience, you know, but you can take your time with it. So it's not like you're standing there in the gallery and, you know, your feet are hurting and you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> this is so much to look at. You know, you can take your time and really see every detail and, and everything. And, you know, I think that Andre did a really good job of pointing out like, 
if you're looking at something on the wall and you're looking at something in a book, even with the IDW books, your eye is drawn to different things. You know, like like when you're seeing a piece framed on the wall, you know, your your eye is drawn to action or like diagonals or or you know some thing about the drawing that draws your eye and then you look at the rest and you take in the dialogue and everything but you know in the idw books you're you're reading again you know so so you know your eye might be drawn to some key part of the drawing but you're much more likely to actually read the thing and digest it all and that's what happens i think is with those you start off appreciating as art but like a lot of things in comics by the time you get to the fifth page you're trapped by the narrative and you start going through it to read it rather than to study it in in terms of the form yeah. oh, that that that's my experience with these things I, I i have a walt simonson thor one that i just love and you know my my experience with these is i i, I look through them first just to like gorge on the artwork and then i go back and like you know read it carefully and and really study the detail but you know, I, 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 I just, I, I think that those books are wonderful. And and so that's a perfect a segue job. for, for me to go to the, the, that first Mala, is it Malatio, Malatu? Andre, uh, Andre Malatu. Malatu. Yeah. I, and, and maybe I was reading it wrong, but, but it presents the issue of, you know, what you're looking at on the wall and the difference between that. And it seemed to me that he was talking about the aesthetic beauty of the of the art to some degree, that that's what you're you're looking at and what you're drawn uh-huh. to when they're framed like that. Yeah. And I felt like that's true, but that's and I'm going to talk about it in terms of film studies, because that's my background. It seemed to me that he was looking at it in a bizarre mise-en-scene, deep focus kind of a way that it's about the picture there on the frame. Uh And I reject that a little bit in that I think there's also room for it to be an Eisensteinian montage aspect to it. When I'm looking at whole pages, especially like with the Kirby, but, but in so many, I'm looking at it by how interesting it is, the panel progression and how everything on the page relates to each other, not because I'm caught in the story, but because I'm caught in the form. And I think, you know, that's what someone, you know, like understanding comics or McLeod might say too. I think to just in his analysis, I thought thought he was just talking about the pretty pictures framed more than about the form of comics. And I, I wondered if, if you had any thoughts about that. You know, in in a way, I think that might be a little true. He's, Andre is an art, a total art historian. I mean, he, 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 he writes about like, you know, 18th century art. And, and he, he actually, the first time that I saw Andre present at Comic-Con, he was doing Kirby and modern art. And he was showing Kirby with like uh, all of these uh, abstract expressionist paintings and uh, showing like similarities between abstract paintings and Kirby's machines and, and the movement in them and everything. So he's definitely looking at comics pages as artworks first. Um, and I think that was the goal of his piece. And the reason why I wanted to reprint it was, is I wanted to give people another tool to be able to talk about 
artwork on the wall and why it works the way it does. But it's true that he's definitely looking at it as artwork first and narrative second. That's that's interesting because what I would say, and I would use Andy Warhol as an example, where if you go and you're looking at the soup cans and you're looking at that on the wall, and then you go into the next room and they're screening Empire and you sit down and you just watch that for 20 minutes or so, it's still, those are both the same museum installation and you're just doing one is 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 doing it in a different way, but it's it's really not a distinction very much to me. They're yeah, both well, art. In in a way that that's that's what Charles Hatfield did with his show. He he had like a main room that was like Kirby's greatest hits and the collages, and they were all uh, like amazing drawings. Where where you know it was like you know, one page of Fantastic Four that was incredible or whatever, you know, I mean, you were definitely just looking at the drawing. But then, you know, the next gallery was Commandy and you were definitely reading that whole book on the wall. Working through, so, you know, I didn't see anybody just look at it and then move on. They went from yeah. page to page. Yeah, you know, because it, it's a story that you get really involved in. I actually got Terry when his bug died, you know, I mean, it was... It was really involving, and, and I, I was right there with him. That just means um, that, you have a soul, because who, who wouldn't cry when yeah, that grasshopper I mean, dies? That, that's, that's one one reason why I was glad Andre actually, in, in his update in my book, writes about Commandy and, and compares it with the um, artist edition and like the, the different things that he looked at and the, the emotional way that he connected with it. I, I, I think that that's... I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, museum exhibits aren't like one thing. I mean, you, you, you really like look at the piece of artwork that you're dealing with and have to like say, okay, how is the audience going to relate to this? What, what are they going to look at? What are they going to see? You know, so, you know, you can present a whole story like Commandy that's very involving and know that the audience is going to look at all that and get it. And sometimes, like, it's just a beautiful drawing, you know, and, and you, you have to figure that the audience is just going to take it that way. Now, I, um, I want to, I'm going to roll the canon part into the final part of your museum, your the curating job that you did with the, the uh, current artists and things. But I, I do want to leave room for one, one thing, uh, one story I, I loved in your book that I think sums up the importance of all of this. And that's that Charles Schultz story about him. Yeah. Is it, could you tell that to us? Okay, so this is 1934. Let me think for a minute. I actually have the newspaper that he saw. This is 1934. Charles Schultz was, I think, like 12 years old or 11 years old. He was trying to learn how to draw comics by copying the King Features comics that were in the St. Paul Pioneer newspaper. And there, there were like 10 comic strips like Skippy and some wartime comics. And his mom was trying to help him with this whole thing. And she noticed that the St. Paul Library was having a display of original comic art by all of the artists that he was seeing in the St. Paul Pioneer, plus sketches by two or three movie stars and, you know, other stuff to like. Draw like Gary Cooper was show. one of them. Yeah. 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 
So he, he had like this epiphany because, you know, it was the depression. So he, he wasn't actually using like real drawing paper. He was drawing on like the, the shirt back, you know, they, they used to put like cardboard and men's shirts when they came back from the cleaners. Sure. He was drawing on those. And, and he was really nervous about like, you know, making mistakes and he was very uptight. So he went to this show and there were blotches and registration marks and whiteout and, and also like just the passion and the drawing. He saw like the brush strokes and, you know, how people were, were, were really drawing, like, you know, the same strips that he had copied, he was able to see like the originals. And it just changed his whole outlook on it. I, he, he, he talked about this um, at the De Young Museum in 1992 and just like glowed while he was talking about what a formative experience this was for him. When I read that, all I could think was how many people that we don't know, that we know as artists, that we don't know that they went to one of those museums or they... And I mean, I remember going to the Masters and seeing those giant Gary Panther pictures and just what that did to me because I never I wasn't that familiar with his work and what would that changed again how I think about comics to some degree or looking I I had my students look at Will Eisner's reign versus Jack Kirby's reign and just go back and forth and those kinds of things you can't get from the comic you have to get that by doing it you know in a in a museum setting yeah, well, there's a couple things. First of all, for for people that are interested in being cartoonists, there's something about the sort of validation of going to a museum and having an artist on the wall and, you know, this is important, you know, that somebody picked this and put all this money into a show and the public is there looking at it. There was a, a big group Goldberg show in San Francisco recently And they not only showed like a huge range of Goldberg's work, which blew me away because I had no idea like the depth of his career, but upstairs, they actually had a show of artists contraptions that were like, like artists that made machines that were like driven by gravity or that you would crank or whatever. And they had, you know, a display of, of Goldberg's, contraption cartoons but also just like these incredible machines so it was it was great to sort of see the continuity of it you know but as as I've interviewed different artists about about shows and included artists in shows uh, there's always some story about you know I saw work by so-and-so in a museum show and it was just incredible and you know, some sometimes it's not another comic artist. Sometimes it's fine art. Like, I'm, I'm, I'll be talking tomorrow night at an artist talk with Emil Ferris, who's everybody's favorite thing is monsters. The Chicago Arts Institute is like another character in that show. She, she, it just like re-renders the paintings and adds so much meaning to them and draws so much for her out of it for her book. Like she can kind of like enter the paintings and. Like there are places where she talks about going, she goes in a basement and says, this basement smells like Matisse, you know, and what does that mean? <laughs> you know, so I, I, it's just seeing like real artwork is such an incredible influence on, on other artists and people that are just trying to get their creativity going. That It's just so important. 
You know, we just talked to Professor Foster about, you know, African-American and comics, went through a whole thing on that. But, and Dwayne McDuffie is obviously important in that. And then also there's a Static Shock show that's going to be produced soon. Right. Um, so tell us what, what caused you to have his <laughs> essay that was actually, I think, written in the 90s about african-american 92 right yeah about african-american comics what how did that fit there and and why did you include that you know as near as i can tell from my research so far that was the first show that actually focused exclusively on black cartoonists it was at the cartoon art museum in san francisco in 1992 and his intro was just so what touching about this childhood story of, you know, playing with his playing basketball with his friend and they were excited because there was like some matchup between the Hulk and the mighty Thor coming out in some comic and, and that, that, you know, they raced over there, but that comic was sold out, but he discovered black Panther and what a huge difference that representation made to him as, Mm -hmm. as a little boy Mm -hmm. that, Wakanda was like this incredible civilization and black people did everything from like, you know, scientist to street sweeper that he, he just, he, he, he expressed so well how this opened up a whole new world for him. And I just felt like, you know, I mean, it was a cartoon art museum catalog that's like, you know, a booklet that's been out of print for like, you know, a couple decades. So mm-hmm. I didn't think that people would be able to see it again. So I really wanted to get that story out because I just thought that it was such a meaningful description of, uh, I, 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 it was one of the reasons why he launched his career in comics. And I just wanted it to be available to people. That's great. As we go through this this next thing, Trina was the cur- curator for the the for one half of the exhibit, and you were you were curator for the other half, or was it more more working together than that? I, I, you know, I was kind of the overall organizer. You know, Trina's Trina's like in her eighties, and. Basically, what happened was is Trina has her collection and a bunch of file drawers in her house. And I went to her house over like three or four days and dug stuff out of her file cabinets. And we talk about it together and be, yes, I like that or no, I like that. Or you can show that one, but you have to show the whole story or, you know, there was a whole conversation about it. So, uh, you know, Trina... uh, definitely had a big hand in curating her collection and you know what pieces were showing and obviously she knows the history of women cartoonists and the importance of these pieces better than anybody so yes trina the whole uh, the gallery is two floors and the whole first floor is trina's collection starting with Mel- nell brinkley in like 1911 and going through the 70s like um, we've got whole stories by Lily Renee and a whole uh, romance novel or a whole romance comic by Valerie Barclay and a whole uh, Camilla Queen of the Jungle story by Marcia Snyder. And it's just like an incredible array of stuff. Down on the second floor 
when you come down the stairs, the first thing you walk up to is a wall of, of um, underground comics from Trina's collection that's from early women's comics, particularly All Girl Thrills Number 1, which was like 1971, that's worked by Trina and Julie Goodfibes and Barbara Mendez. And then there's 20 contemporary artists where, where I, I, I uh, wanted to show you know, if people had a four-page story, I would show a whole story, or there's four pages from a book, or just four splash pages. It depended a lot on the artist. Um, no, but there's 20, 20 artists in different genres. So that's interesting. So, because, you know, Trina obviously is a, a herstorian, right? Where she right. is, where she discusses over the history of women in comics, and and there are some parallels with the Foster interview and the Trina interview, and that that's that's a very strong passion, especially among other things. She's written a lot of stuff. Does her passion for it show in the exhibit? I mean, can you does it shine uh, in the exhibit the way it does in her writings? I I think so. I I um she has a new book out called Flapper Queens that yeah. that just came out from Fanographics. I think it's sold out already actually. Mm-hmm. And she's got another book that's coming out in January about Mopsy about mm-hmm. uh Gladys Parker. But I I I think that Trina's passion for collecting shows up. I mean, she's got very interesting stuff. I I I am uh, uh Dale Missick who did um Brenda Starr. Yes. Um, Trina has a lot of unpublished work by her of like, you know, early strips that she tried that weren't successful before mm-hmm. Brenda Starr, like Mimi the Mermaid and Streamlined Babies. And oh, all okay. That stuff. Of Dale one, Messick one of, stuff. Yeah. What, what, one, one of the things that I think really comes through in Trina's part of the show is Trina's interest in fashion. Oh, yeah. Because all, all of most of the pieces that she shows uh, the women are like dressed to the nines. I mean, nice. it's incredible. And it's all like in that period, like Flapper Fanny and Mel Brinkley and, mm. and Lily Renee and all, mm. all of these women really paid attention to style. Yeah. And, so in, in their comic art, they would have like some of the latest factions in their comic. Yeah. Art. Yeah. So, so it's a real time capsule too. When you're going around the room, you can really get an idea of how women dressed and presented themselves in that era plus plus trina has a pretty good collection of black and white photos of most of the artists and we we have those around so that you can actually see what what they look like and those are hard to find that's great that she has them with the art there for people to look at that that's 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 unique and that's great yeah so now as far as you mentioned lily renee and that and you know there's that lily renee kind of 20 minute like documentary honor that David Armstrong was kind of showing around. Does it discuss any of the personal lives of these artists and, you know, like her encounter with escaping the Holocaust? Does that, is that discussed in the museum or is it more of a showcase of the artwork? No, it's, it's, it's definitely focused on the artwork. I mean, I, we, 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 we've jammed so much work in there. <laughs> yes. It's like, there's only so much you can put. There's, there's not a lot. What Sort of the way that the museum dealt with this is they have a small screening room. So they're showing the documentary. She draws comics downstairs. Right. And people are actually very interested in watching that. So, you know, Lily's story is part of that. And is there some discussion of, you know, I know that Trina mentions this, is that there is a lot of women in comics during the World War II era because a lot of the uh, men were drafted to war. 
And so then they were filling in a lot of the shoes. And then unfortunately they were almost kind of shoved back out when the men came back in like 1945 to get their jobs back. And so it's like, they kind of go away for a while, but then with the kind of civil rights and women's lib movement, you see more of it popping through. Are, uh, is some of this, any of that kind of, is that kind of explained at all? Or is it, uh, how does that it, kind it, of- It is a little bit. And there were still some women working in in like sort of marginalized genres, like romance sure. comics. Like romance for sure, yes. Yeah, in the in the 50s. And, and you know, the, the show goes on like in, into the 70s where, where, you know, women are doing comic strips again. And there's a big, uh, there's a lot of Ramona Fraden's work for DC, Aquaman and, and sure. uh, Plastic Man and and uh, and some work by Marie Severin. Yeah, um, Marie Severin, sure. You know, but I, 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 I think, you know, the one weakness of, of the show is, is that there isn't a lot of didactic. Mm-hmm. Uh, wall panels really because you know the society just wanted to get like as much work as they could on the walls and makes it, sense yeah but, and really i think a lot of people that are going to be impressed with um what they're seeing the visual and the the context of yeah, putting I mean, kind of the there's, older there's, there's the enough i mean you know there's there's like a paragraph here sure. and there like you know and i think probably for like the, the people coming through they're going to try to put absorb so much that they, they they might even feel a little overwhelmed but in a good way yeah. So I, I want to talk about the, uh, the, the 20 that, that you got, that you worked with. Now, did you, did you interact with all 20 of them or were some of them where they just sent you some, some materials? I uh, talked to a few people, like Karen Green and John Lind and some other, like, you know, uh, New York comics specialists that I know. And kind of got a idea of who the New York audience might be interested in because oh, that's uh, orig- originally the show was supposed to open on April 11th and the big opening and, and all of the speaker events were happening during Mocha Fest, which is the, the big, you know, the comics independent comics festival. So, you know, I, I, I wanted artists that would be appealing to that audience. Uh, I had to be careful not to repeat people like uh, society had just done a big show of women of the New Yorker, for instance, you know, so I don't show a lot of New Yorker cartoons. I, you know, that explains a couple of uh, notable absences that totally makes sense to me now. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, I got lots of graphic novels and really thought about people. And I, I wanted to be sure that I had, a diverse range of genres. I wanted to be sure that I had like a lot of different voices, you know, uh, to make sure that that I kind of got like a good sort of, you know, racial, what am I trying to say? Um, you know, that there was a lot of diversity in the show. People like um, Trinidad Escobar, which yeah. a lot well, of people and, might and not Eb- be And from- Ebony Flowers and, and Afwa Richardson and a, a Alethea Martinez, you know, people that are just doing like fascinating stuff like and World it, of Wakanda. And amazing because some of them you would say, oh yeah, well, who recent Marvel artists, like that's not what you would in times past ever have said, but because of the Wakanda stuff, some of these artists are working at Marvel in a way you would not expect them. 
to be. Yeah, traditional. well, and and actually, I mean, uh, the two of them, um, Afwa and and um, Alethea, have had a pretty long careers at Marvel, and have done some DC comics too. But World of Wakanda just really put them on the map. They got Eisner's right for for those. And and the work we you know Afwa is an incredible cover artist that that main poster that we have of Shuri and Storm is by her, and Alethea just did an, a really interesting free comic for DC that's like sort of a uh, based loosely on the um, New York bird watching incident. Right, they, right. Yeah, I, I'm, that, I I've seen that. Yeah, um, yeah. So we're we're doing an artist talk on Monday actually, and 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 she's going to be talking about that. Well, let's let's break them down a little bit. When I was looking at the list and and thinking about it, it seemed like there were not just not just diversity categories, but also there was very much their their area of interest or who who publishes them or whatever. Because like you have the first second kids, the ones that uh-huh. are working in children or young adult stuff and yet i and i i say this on podcasts constantly that's one of the most exciting areas that there is in comics right now yeah i i I agree well and also you know what's happening in this show is kind of a generational story because i've got you know like pioneers like like willie mendez has a new book out that's like her whole creation story called queen of the cosmos and then there's like kind of i've got joyce farmer and lee mars and then there's like kind of a second generation that came in in the 70s and 80s, like Carol Tyler and Mary Fleener and Fiona Smith, the Canadian artist. And then, you know, there are all of, all the new artists that are just, you know, doing incredible work. But it, it, it was very interesting to me how, how diverse the work has gotten in terms of themes and the kind of stories that people tell. I mean, it used to be. You know, you would have like superhero comics and, you know, maybe there would be like, I don't know, some some other topic. And but now, it, it you know, anything goes. People write about anything they're passionate about. It's pretty amazing. Well, I think what's great about the exhibit in total is the fact that you can go in and you can get you can look at Nell Brinkley and then go upstairs and see Wang's Prince and the Dressmaker art and realize it's all part of the same. I mean, those two are the perfect like beginnings and and current in my mind, because the Prince and the Dressmaker, for anybody that likes comics, no matter what you're interested, that's just one of the prettiest books and most moving books. Well, And Colleen Doran's book just blows me away. That's No Glass Apples. Yes. Her, her, Her work is just amazing. So you were saying that you only used a few pages. And I the first one that came to my mind when you said that, that I thought what a frustration that would have to be, would be the Kyoto Wilberg's piece. Yeah. So you only used a couple. And, and we should say, because people aren't going to be familiar well, with that. Well, you know, she, uh, graphic medicine. I wanted to, I think that graphic medicine is such a, interesting and growing genre in comics that I really wanted to be sure that it was represented and her work is so beautiful. We're actually showing five pieces by her because a couple of them were small. We also have a display case where we're showing some of her needlepoint, 
where she actually like embroiders like slight cultures of cells and stuff. <laughs> and and it's, it's just fascinating work. So I, I was really glad to include her. And and the, Tilly Walden is also one of my my favorites in terms of the the newer newer people. And yeah, she's she's one person. She's one person I didn't have a lot of direct communication with. I, I don't know any details. I've mostly worked with her agent on this. I think she stays busy collecting yeah. Eisners. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful work. I was glad to have her. And and. and Let's talk about Carol Tyler yeah. just for a minute because that's that's important both to you guys are this exhibit. interview her soon, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um that's important both in terms of the comic art but also uh, uh, her work is another one that is almost a museum within itself. Uh, a historical museum, but it's so important in the way that she does that. And so let's talk about that just for a second. Yeah, well, there's two things. I I, I did an extensive interview with Carol in my book about right. uh, the show that she did around the work of, of Soldier's Heart, the story of her uh, trying to figure out like what happened to her dad in World War II and why he was still acting the way that he does, which is also blended in with the whole, her whole personal story of, of her family and everything. She, in that show, one of the fascinating things about it was she she shows all of the pages of Soldier's Heart hanging from a clothesline as kind of a Midwestern thing. So they're kind of like in the breeze of the air conditioner waving. And then the second part of the gallery, you actually walk through a cutout of her head into all of this like memorabilia from her family and her dad's workshop and all of that stuff. So that was a very interesting presentation. But Carol likes to make things. So in our show, she has two regular like traditional comics pages. Then she has a page, uh, a story that's etched on saw blades. And she has another story with like little panels and everything that's etched into found wood strips from her farm that are like arranged on like a plaque. You know, that reminds me that one thing I wanted to emphasize on this is, is that it is all women. And it, and, and so there's something collective in, in relation to that. That's, that's really special in this exhibit, but also Women comic artists seem like they are more open to experiment in different forms besides mm -hmm. on the page. That whether it's it's using uh, embroidery or whether it's do I you know we interviewed Mary Fleener and she's always yeah. playing with 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 material and 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 Linda yeah. Berry obviously you know incredible yeah. example yeah. and that. I don't think that translates nearly as much with men as it does where they, they may paint and they may draw, but I don't, I think that the willingness to do all these different craft, it, like bring art into crafts and combine them in a, in a comics form is, is really interesting. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think that, that it's been a tradition for women that, you know, making things, sure. you know, I mean, Craft, needlework, dinner, whatever it oh, is. Mary I mean, did know, that women, quilt. Did the, the, yeah. the page on the quilt. Yeah. 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 I, I, I just think that that it's, it's uh, you know, women grow up like doing a lot of different things you know, uh, as part of their creativity. And I, I think that a lot of things get incorporated. Also, I think that 
because so much artwork is digital now, like uh, there's three or four artists in the show that work like exclusively digitally. I think that they need to like do other stuff to break out of that, you know, to give them like the hands-on art experience. So I, 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 I feel like there's a lot of experimentation with different mediums. And That's I wanted to be sure to show that. So is there, are there any, the, the, the the show certainly didn't get the the audience that it, it it would have because of obviously because of this is there a is there a, a book associated with it is there going to be anything <clears throat> i have a pretty extensive section on my website that that like sort of explains the concepts behind the show and has exhibit photos and and the um all the artists' bios and all of can, that. Can you give but, us the direction to get to get there so that the listeners um, can it's it's neuroticraven.com. Neuroticraven.com, which yeah. I know, but all one word. Yeah. And and there's there's actually in the upper navigation, there's a, a link for women in comics, so it's easy to find. I, I I wish there was a publication. I we're it's kind of up in the air right now because of COVID, but I'm actually negotiating with the U.S. State Department in Rome to remount the show in Rome in May, and they're oh, interested. Wow. In, they're they're interested in doing a catalog, but you know they're they're having another COVID surge in in Italy right. right now, and I think they're really nervous about like making a commitment. So they're kind of waiting to see what's happening. So I'm like, oh, you know, but. You know, I, I, I hope if that happens and, and the gallery is big enough to, you know, mount the same show all over again, I hope to do a catalog with them. Oh, that would be great. Because we that's what's needed. Right? We need a catalog yeah. on this. Yeah. Okay. Alex? Well, this has been a fun episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast, looking at the history of comic art and museums, as well as uh, modern displays in museum exhibitions. Kim Munson, thank you so much. You're you're awesome, and this book really achieved something that I haven't seen published before. That I don't that you that we we actually know it hasn't. You've you, this is the first time it's, it's been a done. First. first time, yeah. So it's it's an honor chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. I hope to see you guys in person at another convention soon.